Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles this evening, turn with me to Psalm chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me into the Scriptures to Psalm chapter 5, and we return again looking into this theme. The title of our study is The God Who Hears Prayer. The God Who Hears and Answers Prayer. Last time together we introduced it by looking in verses 1 through 3. As we consider this theme, the God who hears and answers prayer, this is again a number one of David's prayers where he seeks for prayer and guidance. Specifically in his prayer, he asks the Lord for protection from his enemies. And that protection extends, as we'll see tonight, beyond just the physical harm that they may bring to him, but also the harm through words. He asks the Lord for protection and guidance, and he asks the Lord for justice. Number one, we see as we look into the text, I'm going to kind of read uh, to give us a context to work through, and then we'll walk through the text accordingly here this evening. So join me there in verse 1 of Psalm chapter 5. David cries out and he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it unto you. I will look up. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into your house in the multitude of your tender mercies, your loving kindness. In the fear of you, I will worship towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face. Verse 9, For there is no faithfulness in their mouth, going back to regarding his enemies, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open tomb. They flatter with their tongue. Pronounce them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who rejoice, who put their trust in you, let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let all, or let those also who love your name, be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor, you will surround him as with a shield. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Here in our text, as we walk through this passage, we see, first of all, David's cry. As he cries out unto the Lord. And as we pointed out a few times already, there is, there is power in crying out to the Lord. There is power in prayer. Here in verses 1 through 3, we see David's cry unto the Lord. And there's a lot of instruction as we are bear witness to David's model for praying. It's interesting how listening and praying with the saints of God informs our praying, doesn't it? As iron sharpens iron, so does a man sharpen the countenance of his comrade, of his friend, his brother and sister in Christ. If we stay in our own bubbles, oftentimes we are are prone to pray the same things again and again. But oh, how we are strengthened to hear our family pray. And here, we are strengthened to see and witness David pray. We see his cry. He prays, first of all, with a sense of need, calling out as the king of Israel. We pointed out last time, this is the king. 
He has a military at his disposal. David has a mighty group of men that he can call upon at any time of paramilitary guys to go and do, execute in the dead of night, anything he needs taken care of, and yet he cries out to God. David has very real enemies that we see according to this text and the other Psalms that we've been studying. He has very real enemies. And so in verse 2, that's why he calls out to the Lord and he says, Give heed, listen to me, O God. Give heed to the voice of my cry. Here David is a mighty man. He's a mighty ruler, but here he is a child. He is crying like a child calls out to his father. And he acknowledges something that he knows in verse 12. In verse 12 he says, For you, O Lord, you will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. David knows things, and David prays through things. There's a difference in a head knowledge and a difference in a reminding knowledge. We all know truths about the Lord. We all, to some degree, are theological. Theology is the study and knowledge of God. But friends, regularly, we are shaken. We have conversations. We we have experiences. We just work our normal work days. We interact in the course that God has plotted for us. And every single day, all day long, we find ourselves working back through like a workman, taking apart, or like a mechanic, taking apart the, the engine in a car, diagnosing the problem. We find ourselves taking apart our beliefs and our theology and asking the Lord to make concrete into our lives what we say we believe. Here in David's cry, he prays with a sense of need, and he cries out to the Lord, and he says, I know that you protect your own, yet, Lord, keep me safe. Here, David models for us what it's like to be needy and to be vulnerable. I know things, but Lord, help me. I know that God is sovereign, but I also know that God works through means. And here, David shows us that God is working through the means, the ordained means of prayer. As a matter of fact, like voyeurs, if you will, coming across someone's prayer journal. Some of you may take notes in a, in a journal. You may do your God and I time in a, in a certain particular notebook. And again and again, you come to it, you write down prayers, you uh, do scribbles, and you have a color coding system, whatever. It's intimate. It's personal. Friends, when we come to the book of Psalms, we're coming to a journal like that. It's as if we're, it's as if we're peeking into David's own personal prayer life. And this is what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. And to know. So what we see here is that we are taught that God protects, and yet we're called to pray for protection. Sometimes people get confused on this kind of thing. If God is sovereign, then we don't need to pray for it any longer. That's not what we see according to David's prayer life. And according to Matthew chapter 6, which we noted, the Lord's guidance in the prayer of instruction to his disciples. Jesus himself instructs his disciples to pray to their heavenly Father in heaven to keep them from evil, to provide for their basic needs. We know he will provide. He has provided, and yet to ask him to provide. We know his kingdom is coming. We know it's certain. We know the Lord's will will be purposed and accomplished, and yet we're to pray for it. And we're also to pray that it will be accomplished in our life as it is in heaven. Here David cries out to God and he prays with a sense of need. He also prays with a sense of communion. David is a man who is very closely connected with God. Here is a man who is intimately familiar with his God. Here is a king, here is a man who early seeks his God, who comes early before him, who regularly seeks his God, who regularly brings the, the offering and the sacrifices of praise 
and prayer that his God deserves. Notice with me, verse 3, in the morning, my voice, O Lord, you shall hear in the morning. In the morning, O Lord, I will direct it to you, and I will look up unto you. Here is a man that has a vibrant personal walk with God. He has a sense of intimacy and knowledge and communion of the God that he prays to. David is, has a special relationship that we witness. This is a sense of communion. David, in a sense, points us to the true and better David, who also sought his father early in the garden. Mark chapter 1, verse 35 tells us that, that now in the morning, having risen after a, a while, a long while before daylight, Jesus went out and departed into a solitary place, and there he prayed. The context there in Mark is after a long day of exhausting ministry, healing after healing, miracle after miracle. This is Mark's account, much like Matthew's. What does Jesus do? What does he model for us as his disciples? Listen, in the same way, David has a sense of communion and intimacy with his God as he cries out to him. David points to the true and greater David who models the same as well. And friends, how much more do we need the same pattern? It's not the pattern that's the end. It's the result of prayer. Prayer is not the goal. It's what prayer does for us that is the goal. We don't have time to unpack all of this fully, but as you can see, it's what prayer does for us. It draws us closer to God. Prayer reminds us of our dependence upon God. David cries out. He prays with a sense of need. He prays with a sense of intimacy and communion with his God. Another thing that we see in David's cry and his prayer life here is that he prays submitting to the Lord. Submission invokes, if you will, a sense of humility, knowing his place. And it's a reminder that this is exactly what prayer does for all of us. Again, just remind yourself who David is. I think so oftentimes we just think, yeah, David, king, warrior, points to the true and better David. David prays. David prays. But listen, enter into who David is as a person. Kings have a tendency to be proud. Kings have a tendency to rest upon their riches. Kings have a tendency to rest upon their connections. In fact, you could say it like this. The proud, the scriptures teach us, don't pray. They don't have a God to pray for or pray to, you could say. Yet the humble pray. They see their neediness. And so here we see David submitting and modeling for us a sense of humility, bowing the knee to Yahweh. Notice with me verse 1. He calls the Lord. He addresses him as, O Lord. This is Yahweh. This is his, his proper name. In verse 2, he says, Heed the voice of my cry, my king and my God. And this is where this this shines out to us. David is a king, but David is a king who has a king. What's the principle that we see here? What does the scripture convey to us? It's a reminder to us as David models us a king praying to the, the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords that all authority is a delegated authority. All measured influence that you may have is given to you by God. David is someone who sees his weakness and feels the weight of answering to a greater king than he and he comes to God with submission. He calls out in humility. David is a king. David has a king. And he calls out to his king and humbles himself in the eyes of the Lord. Friends, we need to remember that we are not God. We are not the ultimate king. That any influence that God has given to us, any blessing of a prominence that the Lord has given to us, any authority or power 
that God has given to us, number one, this is not the ultimate teaching of this text, but it's to serve, to use that to serve his kingdom, his body, the advancement of his, his kingdom. But ultimately to remember that we give an account for that. He is the king who all authority is given unto him. Matthew 28 says, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. And we will give an, we will give an account to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. James chapter 4 verse 10 tells us that we are to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. And here we see the wonderful example of the king of Israel asking the king of kings for help. Verse 3, he says, you are, you are my Lord, you are my king, you are my God, you are my Lord. Friends, do our prayers, do our prayer lives convey this humility that David shows and models for us? Is the prayer closet filled with expectations and requests only of God? Or do we come bowing in the presence of, of who he is? There's a sense of submission and humility. And then something else we see here in verses 1 through 3 is that David prays, as he instructs us by modeling prayer, by praying, he prays with a sense of expectation. Again, going back to how he tones and structures the words here. He says, in the morning, I will direct my voice to you. I will look up. Underline, if, if you have that habit in your Bible, I will look up. Literally rendered, I will eagerly anticipate. I will watch eagerly for your face. Your face early, David says in another passage, your face I will seek. This is what it's all about, a sense of expectation. When you come to the Lord in prayer, do you expect him to show his face, his glory, that he will hear your prayers and answer your prayers? Watch for what? Your move, your response, your working in my life. David knows that God hears and that he answers prayers. David knows that prayer works. Oftentimes, Satan loves to come into our weakness and our flesh and say, does prayer really work? He's not answered your prayer here. You've been seeking the Lord. You've been asking. You've been seeking. You've been knocking. And you've been asking him here. Does it really work? Because he's not answered you here. And we're prone to forget in the ways that God has, very, in a very real way, answered and guided in our past. We're prone to forget. Here, David reminds us that he prays to a living God. And this is often, again, the rebuke, the reason why we don't pray. We forget that we're praying to a living God. We forget that we're praying to a God who hears and answers prayers. You can put it like this. This is what separates the goats from the sheep. And the ways that David comes to his heavenly father, earnestly, humbly, with intimacy and communion, this is the mark of a true child of God. The cry of David. Number two, we see the conviction of David as we move into verses four through six. And David certainly, as we see again and again in the Psalms, he has some convictions. It's interesting today to have convictions is to almost be something to be ashamed of, whatever that conviction may be. It better be rooted in Scripture. David certainly has some convictions, and he fleshes these out in his prayer. We could ask the question as we look at verses four through six, where does conviction come from? Where does conviction come from? Because whenever you state a conviction or a truth theologically, it will be tested. There will be a response. The flesh does not like conviction. The wicked do not like the conviction of truth. You preach the gospel, listen, it will be withstood. So where does conviction come from that we see from David here? Convic conviction comes from knowledge. Knowledge gives confidence 
and confidence gives conviction. Daniel chapter 11 verse 32 tells us that the people who intimately know their God, that's the context, the people who know, they know him on a personal level, the people that know their God shall be strong and do exploits. It's a verse we quote often and it applies here. David brings into his prayer life, into his quiet place, all that he knows about God. Friends, David is a theologian par excellence. And as we look at this, he, he breaks down his understanding about who God is. Verse 4, he says, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. James describes it like this, there is no hidden bent to God. God is not capricious. God does not have an alternate personality. God is not like the Phoenician gods, like the, the, um, the Philistine gods. He is not like the pagan gods. God is truth. God is light. There is no iniquity or sin found in him, James tells us. So here in verse 4, David says, For you are not a God who takes a hidden pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. Verse 5, The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehoods. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and the deceitful man. Now, as we look here into this text, the context is not only one of bloodthirstiness in action. That has certainly been the theme of, say, Psalm 4, where David is being chased in Psalm 3. Here, the context is one of words, workers of iniquity, those who speak falsehoods. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty falsehoods. The connection is, is verbs, words, language. So what David wants us to know here is that God rejects wickedness and evil. This is how David brings the theology, his understanding of who God is, reminding himself. In fact, in other Psalms, David will take this holiness of God, this understanding of God, and it leads him to repentance when that applies. He understands that God will have nothing to do with sin. God will not overlook sin. In the lives of the wicked or his children, if we would desire to come to God, we must come with a prayer of confession on our lips. Psalm 119, who can ascend into the hill of God, the hill of the Almighty, the Holy One? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Now let me make the distinction here. In the gospel, in the new covenant, in this age of grace, we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But friends, if our prayers would be heard, we must confess our sins. We can't hold and cherish and treasure iniquity in our hearts and think that we can pray confidently and boldly to this holy God and be heard, that our prayers will be answered. Here, David evokes this fact that God rejects the wicked, wickedness, plural, and evil, generally. In fact, he calls upon the Lord. He says, I pray that you will keep me safe from wicked men. Deliver me from evil, as he brings in the disciples' prayer that Jesus instructed. David cries out to the Lord. He says, you are the true God. You are the God who takes no pleasure in wickedness. God is not a God like we are in our own making, in our own image. God is holy. He is separate. This is a man who beholds his God. David is gripped with a high view of who God is. And so God's holiness is in, in view here, invoked here. And friends, it's a reminder to us, is what we see in a pattern of Scripture, that when God's holiness comes upon the scene, everything changes. We change. In fact, Exodus chapter 3 reminds us when God called out to Moses 
Moses is just living his everyday life. Moses' life changed when he saw the burning bush, when he saw the glory of God. Moses, take your sandals off, for the ground that you're standing on is holy ground. Isaiah chapter 6, you're familiar with these passages of Scripture. Isaiah's living his life, a normal prophet in a normal broken world. Everything seems whatever. But in the year that King Uzziah died, the security is shaken. Circumstances change. There's a sense of fragileness and brokenness and security being shaken. He is taken up into a vision to the glory of heaven. He sees the Lord reigning in holiness upon his throne. And when he sees the holiness of God, his immediate response is, Woe to me, for I am undone. Luke chapter 5, Peter, when he is called to be a disciple to Christ, in verse 8, when Simon Peter saw the miracle that Jesus performed, the context is the, the great catch following Jesus' command to go cast their net. When he saw God work, when he saw Jesus work in his sovereignty, he cries out to the Lord and he says, depart from me. When he sees the glory of Christ, when he sees the holiness and power of Christ, he asks the Lord to depart from him because he says, I am a sinful man, O Lord. Here's the point. Our God is a holy God. When we come into his presence, we come clothed, as we sang tonight, complete in thee, no works of mine. We come with his works on our account. But we come into the presence of a precious and holy Heavenly Father. And the only way that we can come, as David will give to us later on, is into his place. Verse 7, but as for me, I will come into your house. Notice here, in the multitude of your mercy. It's the only way we come into the presence of God is by the mercy of Christ. So David's conviction is that God rejects wickedness. In fact, verse 4, he says, you take no pleasure in evil. David understood that God cannot in any way tolerate evil or wickedness or fellowship with sin. In verse 5, he shows us that God refuses not only generally the actions of wickedness, but notice what he says here. God refuses those who commit it. God rejects the wicked. God refuses the arrogant. Verse 5, those who commit wickedness. Not only does the Lord hate evil, but he has no place for evil people. Verse 5, the boastful shall not stand in your sight, O God. Notice, you hate all workers of iniquity. I'm content to let the word of God speak and stand. Many people would hear that today and they would say, well, that's not my God. And they don't know their God. You're right. If your response is, you don't know God, if that's not your God, then you don't know God. And friends, I would tell you, before I make my application here in just a moment, this is what leads us to the gospel. This is what causes us to flee to Christ, the ark of safety. This is an imprecatory psalm where David asks the Lord's justice and holiness to reign. And of course, we have the fuller revelation of Scripture. This is truth. At the same time, the truth is this. Listen, friends, if you're listening to me tonight, you need to understand that God hates the wicked, yet that God has made a provision for the wicked through his son, Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus and live, because the wrath of God is coming. Many today would hear this language of David, and they would say, I don't, I don't like this God, and proving they don't know the true God of the Bible. Now, notice the language that David uses here. David is very acquainted with the doctrine of the depravity of man. Verse 5, boastful. A key sign of the fallenness of man, of the works of the flesh, is boasting. Hot air. Promoting self. 
This is what Paul says. He says, I'm accused of this. He says, but we do not preach ourselves. We preach Christ Jesus the Lord. Verse 5, boastful. Uh, workers of iniquity. Those who transgress the law of the word, the law and the word of God. Verse, verse 6, those who speak falsehoods, they are full of murder and deceit. Verse 9, for there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is destruction. Their throat is an open sepulcher or tomb. They flatter with their tongue. This is the language of Romans chapter 3 describing the depravity of man. You know what's sad though is this, listen, as we are in this fallen flesh, we see ourselves in this mirror of Scripture. We, we see if we do not mortify the sins of the flesh, that even though this is indications and marks of, of the, the depravity of man, this is indications at times of our own life, friends. If we do not see our sin and mortify our sin and come into the light of Scripture and remind ourselves that this is the way that we once were. This was the, the way of the natural man. This is the way we were in our fallenness. And yet at times we see this natural way bringing up the weeds in our spiritual life of popping up again and again. This language that David uses, Paul uses again in Romans chapter 3 and in Romans chapter 1. And so David points to the fact of the depravity of man. This is David's conviction. It is theologically rooted, rooted into the character of his God. The fact that God rejects wickedness and evil. God refuses the arrogant. God resists the deceitful, verses 6 and 9. And David wants us to know that the deceitful are an affront to God. Why is this? Friends, we need to remind ourselves that God is a communicating God. Deceit attacks his character. Falsehoods attacks his truth. God, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, listen, he is a rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth, and without iniquity, just and right is he. He is a God of truth. So to sin in these particular ways, as the wicked do, to be deceitful, duplicitous, to be boastful, proud, arrogant, gossip, innuendo, do whatever, all the sins of the tongue, it is an affront against our communicating God of truth. I was meditating on this particular sin, and I was thinking, I wonder what the financial balance would be. I don't know how to aggregate the numbers, but I'll give you the trajectory of my thinking, which may be a scary thing. What, what is the cost of falsehood in today's economy? If, if we were able to walk down to the local police department, the sheriff's department or Kingston police, and to undertake a case and to take a crime and as they just say, give us an overview for how much money and resources you've spent on this, trying to track down the, the murderer or the, the thief, the robber, whatever it is. As you've interviewed witnesses, how much money have you spent in resources and gas and personnel and overtime just trying to get to the heart of the truth? Falsehoods. God hates lies. God hates boasting. God hates uh, all of those types of things, the sins of the tongue. If we could put a financial cost on it, it would be astronomical just in this town and in this city. It would be astronomical nationwide and worldwide. But regardless of just the financial cost, the bottom line is throw all that overboard. God hates anything that is not the truth. That's what David wants us to know. His conviction here is that God, thirdly, he resists the deceitful. God will judge the deceitful. God will judge those who speak lies. 
And so as he judges them, as he judges sinners in the future day of judgment, it will be an expression of his righteous reign, his, his holiness. And so David can say confidently here, Oh God, you will destroy those who tell lies. So evidently David has people who are lying about his reign or his kingdom or his administration. We don't know the full details of it. There's enough here to say, God, search me, oh God. Try me, know my heart. You are a holy God. You are a God who sees me as, as Hagar prayed as she was on the run running away from the, the problems that she had in her relationships with Sarah. And she wanders off into the desert and she laments and cries out and prays at the same time all in one and says, God, you are the God who's, who sees me, even here in the middle of nowhere. You are the God who sees. Friends, as we try to make application here, we who were once the children of wrath, we have to mortify the deeds and works of the flesh every single day by the power of the Spirit. If you will, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Just very quickly, I want to look at just two or three verses there. Paul describes in Romans chapter 8 the daily battle and struggle for the Christian. As we bring in what are the sins in the light of the holiness of God, these sins that we've been looking at, as Christians, we must seek the Lord by His power and ask Him to mortify, to put to death these deeds of the flesh. Paul exalts in the fact that there is freedom in Christ. So beginning there, Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We're robed in the righteousness of Christ by faith and grace alone. We can come boldly into the presence of our high priest. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on the account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. Notice verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit the things of the Spirit. So the question we could ask is, the context of the Gospels is, what fruit am I bearing? Those of the flesh walk according to the flesh. Those of the Spirit bear the fruit of the Spirit. Those who abide with the Holy Spirit of Christ, He will bear forth fruit within them. And then Paul says, reminder here, succinctly, verse 6, for to be carnally, fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor deed can it be? So then, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. How do we know when we're in the flesh? The very thing that David praises that God will judge, oftentimes in our own journey of grace as we're living according to the Spirit, begin to creep up in our own hearts and lives. One commentator said of this, the most powerful force on the planet, according to James in James chapter 3, is, is the sin of the tongue more powerful than any atomic bomb, more powerful than any force outside the Holy Spirit, the tongue, the sins of the tongue, deceitfulness, boastfulness, flattery, controlling methods and those types of things, killing through gossip, if you will, assassinating verbally behind people's back is more powerful than any other force on the face of the planet. In fact, if you know that context, James chapter 3, James concludes that life and death are in the power of the tongue. So here what David is exalting is the fact that there will be justice one day to make application to the local church. May the Lord examine our hearts, 
Show us our sins. Show us where we revert back to these things as well. And remember that we must deal with these things. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that if we judge ourselves, he will not have to judge us of our sins. Friends, what a gift the Lord's table is for us. What a gift coming in front of the presence of God's word is for us. As James again says, the word of God is like a mirror that shows us our natural state, of the sins in our life, that we may confess it and forsake it and find grace and help in our time of need. Here, James in James chapter 3, the passage that I made allusion to, must have been reflecting and considering the power of these sins. He, he makes application by way of metaphor, and he says, he who controls his tongue is like the person, like the rudder who controls a, a powerful ship. A tiny little rudder can control a massive, massive ship. He who can control his tongue is like the bridle that controls a horse. It's interesting, you can see a small man. These riders in these horse races are not big guys. They're tiny guys. They're guys who are very light. You can see a woman or a child, a young lady, or somebody get up on a horse, a massive horse, and just through the tiny little bridle be able to control a powerful being. Our tongue is two ounces, yet it's a very powerful, powerful thing. Well, here, what David exalts is the fact that the character of God will deal with, with sin. Friends, what a God we have. This is confident. This is conviction. Do we have this conviction? More importantly, do we see these sins present in our life? If we only look at these texts as a reflection of, well, this is what David prays, or this is the great out there, but yet walk away from the text and don't ask the Holy Spirit to make it personal, we are of all men most to be pitied. May the Lord help us and give us grace to discern. I want to give you one last verse as we close. Matthew 12, 37. Matthew 12, 37. Which is a great gospel connection to what David is saying. Jesus would tell us, Remember, a tree is known by its fruit, beginning there in verse 33, but just succinctly, verse 37. He says, For by your words you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. May the Lord help us as we seek his face. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your word, the power of your truth. Father, these psalms are very clear, powerful exhortations of how great and amazing our God is. Father, you are a holy God. You are a God of truth and without iniquity. This is our conviction. We echo David's, not only his cry, but we echo the same theological supports here. Father, you have proven yourself real to us. We thank you for your spirit who is at work in us day by day, renewing us, showing us our sin, showing us the angst in our heart. When we do not center ourselves upon the gospel, we feel like we have to defend ourselves and promote ourselves. And that comes across, Lord, in how we speak to those who bear the image of God. Father, it is the way and the path of wickedness what David describes here. May we be like those, Lord, who have tasted of the goodness of God. We have tasted and seen the goodness of the Lord. Our words are seasoned with salt, as Paul tells us to be. May we not be like the depraved and natural man. Father, thank you for the gospel who makes this change within us. Thank you for the gospel that keeps us from having to promote ourselves or build up ourselves or preach ourselves. Father, our boast and our aim is Christ and Christ alone. It's in your precious name we pray.
Amen.